Well, we are in the middle of a series called Why Church? Why Church? And we started the series with a sermon entitled Lone Sheep Equals Wolf Food. And of course, that was just to give everyone the realization that we need each other. We need this thing called church. It's too hard to go it alone. There's some real threats. We're designed to have a community and we're designed to have a shepherd. We need both. So don't be a lone sheep because you're just wolf food. And as we talked about, dragon food and lion food, which sheeps, they love sheep. You really don't have a chance, especially if they have ranch dressing. The next week, (laughs) that's right. We talked about what is church anyway, and that's kind of a strange and rare question. Most people don't ask the question, what is church? Because we all think we already know what church is. But we talked about how church is actually the sacred gathering of people that call Jesus Lord and Savior. And you enter into the church, not necessarily through the front door because it's not a building, but through the confession that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life. And we talked about that. So that's great. We need the church, and the church is a group of people, but we still have another question to answer, and that is, what is a church to do? What's the mission? What is the mission of the church? God is this sacred body of believers. What is he going to do with it? Now, before we go on, there are some two easy answers, right? We can say, well, the church is supposed to preach. What? Well, we're supposed to preach about Jesus. That's technically true. I don't want to poo-poo that, but I took a different route. Partly because I have to speak for a little over 20 minutes, and partly because it is a little more involved than that. The church's mission in the world is more involved than just yelling the name of Jesus to everyone we meet. But some people think they know what the church is supposed to do already. Especially if you think it's a building, you might think it's this. Or this. It's not age discriminatory. Who slept in church when they were a kid? Raise your hand. And the reason people sleep in church, I figured it out just today, it came to me, is because they have to rest up to be angry protesters. You got to sleep sometime, so you sleep during, that's not funny at all, I apologize. No. (laughs) What is a church to do? Here's a revelation that I got by reading a book that was very good, it was slightly dry, but I'm telling you, it's awesome, and if you want to go get it, it will be worth your time plugging along. It's called The Continuing Conversion of the Church by a guy named Daryl Guder. Guder, G-U-D-E-R. And he says this quite simply, the church's mission is God's mission. Or God's mission is the church's mission. Our job is to continue doing what he has wanted to do in the world. So the question is, what does God want to do? What's God's objective? What is God's mission? And if we can answer that, we'll have a pretty good handle on what we're supposed to do. And God's mission is redemption. Redemption. If you look in Genesis, has anybody ever read Genesis? Most people, when they decide, I'm going to start reading the Bible, they open it up to Genesis. Some of us love Genesis, right? That's right. We discover pretty quickly that mankind messes up, and we mess it up big. Adam and Eve just open the floodgates to these things called sin and death, right? And they wreak havoc on the world, and the earth is cursed as a result. Cursed. When I was doing research on a passage in Judges about 18 months ago, I stumbled across two books that talked about curses in the ancient world. And curses were looked at differently than we look at now. When we say a curse now, we think you can say, oh, just kidding, and that's done. But back in the day, they viewed a curse as this real active agent that went out and was doing destructive things. And if you wanted to counteract a curse, you couldn't just recall it. You had to offer a blessing in its place. With that in mind, 
Let's read the call of Abraham in Genesis. The Lord shows up and says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I find it interesting that the curse happened in Genesis, and now God is sending out the blessing. Interesting. I drew that conclusion myself, so it's not seminary approved, but I think it works. A blessing is powerful. And any way you cut it, even if I'm on base, on off base on the whole curse blessing thing, which for the record, I don't think I am, what we have here is a plan from God Himself that is aimed at the whole world, motivated by compassion, and fulfilled through His chosen people. Now I have a scary term up there on the slide. Scary term, the elect. And if you've grown up in church, and if you've heard this term, the elect, you kind of have this image in your head maybe of people that believe some people are in, and some people are out, and some people are really privileged, and they get to be the elect, and some people, those poor people, they just don't get to be the elect no matter what, and the elect are privileged, and the non-elect are not privileged. We're going to throw all that out, okay? Because when God chooses Abraham to be a blessing and he chooses all of Israel, he's not showing favoritism. I found a great quote that says this, the purpose of election was service. Somebody say service. Service. And where this was withheld, election lost its meaning. And then there's a Bible verse in here for emphasis. It's Amos 3.2. For you alone have I cared among all the nations of the world. Therefore will I punish you for all your iniquities. That's God talking to Israel. And the author is making the point that election primarily conveyed neither privilege nor favoritism, but rather responsibility. So Abraham is chosen. It's an honor. But it's also primarily responsibility. And we've talked about this as well. And his responsibility is to go to the whole world and be a blessing. The earth is, earth is cursed, Abraham. Everybody's rebellious. Nobody is, is doing right. I pick you and your descendants and your job is to go out there and be a blessing. And I'm going to hold you accountable for doing that. Does that sound good? Sounds kind of heavy, I think. How do we fulfill God's mission? If God's mission is redemption and not just for a few people but for the whole world, that is an interesting question. Well, the New Testament doesn't tell people to do missions. If you crack open your Bible right now and you look for a verse that says, missionaries are great, go out and be missionaries, don't forget to do missions at church, you won't find it. Because that terminology isn't in there. The key word that runs through the New Testament is this word, witness. And the word in Greek is martyr. Martyrdom has a certain connotation now in our culture. A martyr is someone who dies for the faith. But martyr means witness, and it's used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament. God expects people to be witnesses. Mission is witness. Guter made that statement, and I thought, that is a loaded statement, buddy. If the mission of God is redemption, we can't possibly just fulfill that through witness, can we? And then, of course, he goes on to describe what he means by witness, and I find myself agreeing with him. Hence, my sermon is based on his stuff. <laughs> witness isn't just something you do. 
Witness is the identity of God's people. Jesus sums up what it means to be a witness in his life and in what he did. And he will forever and always be the thing we witness about. We witness to what Jesus has done. It sounds too simple to just say, go out and preach the gospel. But this is very important. But the gospel is the whole work of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, the fact that he overcame sin and death, the fact that he made us a way to be reconciled to God, that is good news. And we witness to that. And being a witness isn't just something you do. It becomes your identity. In Acts 1.8, the Lord says, you will be my witnesses. We as people. So it's not just something we do at a certain allotted time. It's who we are. And it's always been the case, even with Israel. I'm going to read a longer passage from Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, Isaiah is talking to Israel, and he's saying this in the context of all the other nations in the world. They don't have the real deal. They don't have the real God, but Israel does. And this is how God wants to prove it. He says, Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove that they were right so that others may hear and say it's true. He's saying, you're so great. Your gods are the big deal. Let's have a few witnesses to what they've done, to their power. And then we'll know it's true. Of course, they can't do that. And God finishes the thought. You, Israel, listen, listen to the switch in tenses here. This is interesting. Not tenses, excuse me, plurals. You are my witnesses, plurals, talking to individuals, declares the Lord, and my servant, singular, talking to the nation as a whole, whom I have chosen. Isn't that interesting? Kind of foreshadowing the church, where a conglomeration of individuals making one new unit. Just thought that was neat. That's an aside. It's free. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, who I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. That's Isaiah 43, 8 to 10. And he hits the same note in the next chapter in Isaiah 44. The people were the witnesses. Their mission was to be a blessing through the whole earth. How were they going to do that? By being a witness of the goodness and the reality of God. It's the same for us. Here's another quote. An Old Testament prophet had called the people of Israel to be God's witnesses in the world. The task which Israel had not fulfilled was taken on by Jesus and shared with his apostles. Guess what? It didn't end with them. When Jesus opened up the scriptures in Luke, and he sits down and they look at him intently because they want to know what he's about to say, and he says... I'll just read it for you if that's okay. Even if it's not okay, I'm, I'm going to read it. <laughs> Luke 4, 18 to 21. Jesus is announcing his ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's announcing the year of the Lord's favor, but that verse continues and says, In the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus left that out. This is not time for that. It's like it's favor time. 
This is my time. Jesus is the pinnacle of our witness. God's plan was to redeem the whole world. It came to fulfillment. Excuse me, that's the wrong word. came to its, its zenith in Jesus, and he's forever the cornerstone. Jesus erased the barrier between God and man. And he is forever the thing we point to and say, this is how you get right with God. We are witnessing to his finished work. Okay? Jesus witnessed for God's plan. We witness for Jesus. Right on through the apostles to us. So what's a church to do? Well, God's mission is our mission, and God's mission is redemption. And now we know that we fulfill that mission through our witness. But I still have not answered the question that no doubt all of you are wanting to know. How do we witness? What exactly do you mean by that? And we're going to talk about it on an individual level, and we're going to talk about it on a corporate level, and then we're going to wrap it up. And there's a question at the end. Basically, do you really want this? Because there's a result of being a witness. There's a result. So we're heading towards that question as a conclusion. But first, how do we witness? What does that even mean? Now, for the sake of time, we're getting long. I'm going to skip some of my favorite methods here. I don't, don't really have time to talk about these, but you, know, you can research that on your own. <laughs> I don't think those work anymore if they actually ever did. Oh, man, tracks. I used to work at Harding's, man, and we'd be stocking shelves, and we'd find tracks, like, hidden everywhere. Like, I just want to buy some mushrooms, man. I didn't need this fake $100 bill. That is mean. We're retail employees, and you leave us a fake $100 bill? We don't want to give our lives to Jesus when you, when you give us that. We want to take your... No, never mind. Amen. Somebody preach. I'll do it. I'm up here. <laughs> How do we witness? This Guter guy says we witness in three ways. I'm going to modify it. He says our proclamation is witness. By this, he just means we speak the truth, right? With our words, we talk about what God has done in Jesus. Through our service, we worship. Through what we do and our actions, we proclaim that we are changed and we are representing a work of Christ in our own lives. And also through our fellowship, and this is interesting, he sees a witness in the church community. Ah, I'm going to really have fun talking about that one. So what we say, what we do, and the communities we're a part of. Let's talk about us as individuals first. Individual words, actions, and identity are the way we do it as people. Corporately, we do it as a culture. So I've entitled this short section on being a witness personally, Be Salty, But Don't Forget to Talk. <laughs> Who's heard the terrible quote, you know, preach the gospel always and if necessary use words? That is a terrible quote because it's difficult to preach the gospel without using words. It's an incomplete quote. I don't like it at all. This is why. We are called to act, okay? Matthew 5, 16, this is one verse of many. If you hop over to Matthew 5, you're going to find so much good scripture in there, it's going to blow your mind. You could spend a week just in Matthew 5. But here's one. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. People are supposed to see your good deeds. Did you know that? So that they may glorify your Father in heaven. And you can pick a whole bunch of verses to put in here. We're salt. We're light. It's all in one big cluster. You're supposed to do things. And people are supposed to see the good things that you do. And they're supposed to glorify God. Act. If you're not doing kingdom stuff, if you're not representing a redeemed life, 
then your, your witness is incomplete. If you're all words and no action, that's really no good. Does that make sense? We all know that. That horse is deceased. I will move on. We're also called to speak. This is a great verse, and apologists love this verse. Man, I've known some good apologists. They quote this all the time. 1 Peter 3.15. This is just the middle. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And that's great. And I've heard a lot of people talk about how this means we have to give a defense, and we have to know facts, and we have to be studied up. Yes, you do. But do you know the context of the verse? Peter is talking about doing good. This verse is in the context of people are going to notice the good that you're doing and the hope that is in you, and they're going to ask. Our good deeds are a witness, but that part of the witness is supposed to lead to this part of the witness. If you're all action and no talk, maybe, just maybe, you're a fraidy cat. Spurgeon had another word. He busted out the big C word. He called people cowards, and he wasn't afraid to do it. I'm not going to do that here because culturally we have different situations than he did in England in the 1800s. But actions are supposed to lead to words. Both are an integral part of your witness. But don't forget it's not just what you say and what you do. You say it and you do it because it's who you are. We are called to be the witness. Remember Acts 1.8. Every speech on how to think and behave in the New Testament is written to the church. Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Colossians, what does it look like to be in the community of believers? All of the famous do's and don'ts. That's not written to the world at large. That's not Paul saying, I wish they'd get their act together. That's Paul talking to individuals in the church and saying, your life is a witness, guys. You are pointing in your actions, in your speech, to the work of Jesus Christ. This is how you need to do that. I'm going to read one of his, one of his speeches from Ephesians real quick. Give me one moment. I'm using dual technology today. I've got the phone and I've got the screen. This is crazy. Crazy. Never thought I'd be here. Ephesians 4, 29 to 32. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. This and all the other lists in the Bible are telling you what type of identity you need to have. You are a witness. This has to flow out of you from the inside. In short, we need to take on the character of the king. Amen? If you agree with that, raise your hand. Yes. One of the main goals of God is to instill his character in you. This next slide, I love. And if you take anything away from this message, it's the next slide. Okay? I really believe this with all my heart. Individuals with the king's character create communities with the kingdom's culture. Individuals with the king's character create communities with the kingdom's culture. Do you think the church is healthy? Well, your answer might vary. You might say yes, because your particular church is healthy. You might be looking at the church on a global scale and say, 
It's not so healthy in the West. It's healthier in the East and South America. But I'll tell you the one thing you can do immediately to help the church in a real tangible way. If you want it to be a community with the kingdom's culture, make sure God has permission to put the king's character in you. Make sure. And if you're not willing to do that, don't say anything bad about the church. Amen. 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 Preach, Anthony. That's good. I agree. I agree. That is good. So that's the slide. If you need to fall asleep or leave, you can do that right now. That was the one. (laughs) What's a church to do? All right. God's mission is our mission, and that mission is redemption. We fulfill that mission with our witness, and that is what we say. It's what we do. It's who we are. It has to be at an identity level, and that witness is meant to be noticed. There are no undercover Christians. And here is where we get the sticky wicket. Okay? This is the sticking point for a lot of people. They're okay with all this. They want God's character. They want to be able to say and do nice things. But the minute someone notices that, or they're called out at work, or they're known as that religious person, they get, they get kind of weird. But this is the plan, guys. The church is on display, on purpose. One of the ways we fulfill God's mission of redemption is by being noticed. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Think about that. Jesus knew the Roman culture. He knew that them proclaiming another king, being citizens of another kingdom, announcing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and not the emperor, he knew what trouble they were going to get in. And he was telling them right off the bat, before he died, before everything came falling down, he said, you will be like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Do not put your light under a basket. You're supposed to be noticed, even when it's hard, maybe especially then. You cannot fulfill God's redemptive mission if you're not willing. You can't. And if people aren't perceiving God's redemptive mission in your life, you're not witnessing right. This is a little more challenging than last week. Secretly, I like these kinds of messages. That's because I get to put in funny pictures and and get away with it because it's pretty serious. This being on display thing is a bigger deal than we think. We're not just on display to people. This This is cosmic in a literal sense. So... I'm going to read it, and if it sounds really big and out there, that's okay, it is. This is Paul writing in Ephesians 3, 8 to 10. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. He was always talking down about himself because he used to be a murderer. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Oh, wow, so he has the special ministry of revealing this mystery. What's the mystery that he's got to reveal? That through the church, the sacred community of believers, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. If that sounds like he might be talking about extra super powerful demons operating on a cosmic level, You, my friend, would be correct. That is what Paul means. We're never told to go head-to-head with these things. They're only mentioned a few times in the Bible, the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers, but they're real. They're out there. Christ has defeated them. That happened at the cross. 
The Bible says he made a public display of them. He didn't only beat them, he drug them through the mud in the middle of the street. And everybody knows it. And what shows off his victory? What shows off his goodness? What shows off his power? Is when we have a kingdom community that is doing things according to his culture and not theirs. They are witnesses of that victory. We represent it on earth. When we are individuals with the king's character, making a community with the kingdom's culture. Klein Snodgrass, and yes, that's really his name, who wrote the NIV application commentary for Ephesians, says this. Snodgrass, he had to be a scholar. The focus in Ephesians, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Klein. I hope he's small. The focus in Ephesians on the rulers and authorities has to do with evil powers. This verse should thus be understood in the context of the display of God's glory even to those who oppose him. The church's existence and conduct are making known, that's witness, how great God's plan of salvation is, both to people and to the powers. And this gives an unparalleled importance to the church. What's a church to do? God's redemptive mission is the church's mission. We fulfill that with our witness. What we say and what we do because of who we are and our community with the kingdom culture. Our witness is meant to be noticed. We are on display not only to people who might be against us, but to angelic powers that are up to no good. God is rubbing his victory in their faces through us. Witnessing, this is the last point, builds the kingdom. And that creates a ruckus. So here's the question. All of what I just said is true. The intended result of this is to further God's redemptive mission, right? Well, more and more people get redeemed, that means more and more people will be brought into the kingdom. The kingdom is expanding. But that is not a a quiet, nice, and delicate process, is it? I think anybody who's been a Christian longer than two months knows that representing and expanding the kingdom is not easy. And often, it's a little scary. It creates a godly ruckus. I'm going to finish with this quote. The kingdom is in-breaking, forcing its way through persons, institutions, and societies, attracting and repelling, being seized by faith and being rejected by unfaith. The presence of the kingdom in Jesus Christ is opening its way among the people, forgiving sins, restoring life, creating community, but at the same time, exacerbating the forces of the anti-kingdom that will take him, speaking of Jesus, finally to the cross. The presence of the in-breaking kingdom provokes a confrontation. Bill Johnson says very similar things about the miraculous. He says miracles will force a decision. This is common knowledge among people that are trying to extend the kingdom. Read some of Heidi Baker's testimonies. Crazy. Crazy. So the question again, what's the church to do? We know it's redemptive. We know now our witness is what we say and do because of who we are and the kingdom communities that we inhabit. We know that we're supposed to be noticed, but that is going to create a ruckus, not just in the physical realm, but in the heavenly realm. We are serving the one who's victorious. Jesus has beat them. 
That's true. We don't really have to worry about the powers so much, but are we concerned with what our boss thinks about us? I'm going to tell you, Satan doesn't have any authority over you at all, but your foreman might. Devils are not that close, but your family is. Are you willing? Are you willing to be a witness? The option to take part in God's plan is open. It will work. It will be noticed. And sometimes I think that's what we're afraid of. And we just have to let that go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.